Our reading of God's Word today comes from Galatians chapter 5. Would you please stand out of reverence for God's Word? It's Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be reading through 13 through 26, verses 13 through 26. Please give careful attention to this reading of God's Word. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All flesh is grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Galatians, which has mostly taken place in our evening services of worship, which happen twice a month. So it may be beneficial for all of us here to have a bit of a recap for what's gone on in the letter uh, Paul wrote to the Galatians. In chapter 1, in the first half of chapter 2, Paul offers a defense, of it were, of his apostolic ministry and the authenticity of it. He says that the gospel he received was not from man or by man, but was from an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, a revelation of Jesus Christ given to him. The authenticity of his call was recognized when he went to Jerusalem and received the right hand of fellowship of the apostles there and was seen as the apostle to the Gentiles, even as Peter was to the Jews. Yet in the second half of chapter 2, Paul recounted how in Antioch he had to confront Peter to his face because Peter stood self Condemned, He was having table fellowship with Gentiles until certain Jews came from Jerusalem and he withdrew. Paul, seeing that this was not in accord with the gospel and that Peter led other Jews, even Paul's beloved assistant, Barnabas, to follow in his hypocrisy. So Paul withstood him to his face. And he said, if we who through the law have died to the law and the life that we now live by faith in the Son of God, how can we put this burden on the Gentiles that we could not even do? You're not walking in step with the gospel. 
Throughout chapters 3 and 4, Paul has argued that the Galatians have begun by the Spirit, who made them alive, that through faith in Christ and by the work of the Spirit, they are now united to Christ by faith, are sons and daughters of God, the true heirs of Abraham, and the true seed of Abraham, even as they have faith in Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. Whereas the false teachers in Galatia were teaching that circumcision was necessary to be true children of the promise, in the first 12 verses of the chapter that we're looking at now, chapter 5, Paul has argued that the Galatians, if they accept circumcision, they're denying the sufficiency of Christ and he'll be of no advantage to them because they're seeking to fulfill the promises through their own fleshly and sinful efforts, denying the sufficiency which God has provided in Christ. In so doing, Paul has strenuously argued if they seek to fulfill the promise by circumcision or any other work, they're essentially falling back into pagan idolatry because they're going to the law in abstraction from its fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. In the second half of Galatians, the text we're looking at today, Paul continues his argument and brings it to a climax. And that's important to state because sometimes when we read Galatians or commentators have taken parts of it, we kind of take Galatians 5, this half of it, and look at it as if it's not connected to the other argument. But that's not the case. We can't just take the fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit out of context. It has a context within this Galatian controversy, and we're going to talk about that a lot. Paul continues his argument, and this is the climax of it. It's not until chapter 6 that he's going to take all that he's argued, and he's going to apply it to the specific conflict and strife which is happening in the Galatian church. So that's just a bit of a recap. But in our passage today... Galatians 5.13-26, through 26, Paul talks about how, in light of the coming of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of His Spirit, there are now two clearly different and opposing spheres of existence or powers of influence. There's the flesh, and there's the Spirit. In this context, the flesh refers to the whole human nature and his or her fallen condition with the power that it exerts on our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and our actions. The Spirit is, of course, God's Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ in faith and who fulfills the law in believers by writing it on their hearts and empowering them to live out a life of loving service to one another. What we'll see today is that what the law and the flesh could not do, bring true righteousness, God does through sending His Son to die for us and sending His Spirit into us to live in us, so that we can have a manifested, fruitful life of love in the church. To come to this conclusion, we're going to consider three points. First, we're going to look at fulfilling the law, verses 13 through 15. Second, we're going to look at fighting the flesh, verses 16 through 21. And finally, we'll look at fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 through 26. Fulfilling the law, fighting the flesh, and fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at that first point, though. Fulfilling the law. Paul began chapter 5 by referring to the concept of freedom. He said, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand therefore firm, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And he's referring there to taking on circumcision and law obedience. And by saying again, he's equating that with their former pagan life, because they're again abstracted from the Lord Jesus Christ. Leading up to this fundamental declaration of freedom, Paul has talked at length about the imprisonment 
and concept of slavery. Uh, Prior to the coming of Christ, the Jews were held in slavery to the law and its demands. The law served as both a slave master and a guardian to them, all with the purpose of showing them their sin and their need for a savior, all of which pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of all of the law. Likewise, he's talked about the Gentiles as having been enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, serving and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Whereas the Jews and the Gentiles were both in a form of slavery, the Jews were in, of course, a much better position because they had the law and they had God's promises, all of which were shadows which pointed to the substance which is Christ who was to come. So they had that hope of a coming Savior. But it was still a servile state and types and shadows. The issue at Galatia was that the Judaizing false teachers were seeking to draw the Galatians back into the shadows of the law in abstraction from the substance, which the law always pointed to. With the coming of Christ, with his person and his work, he himself fulfilled all the law's requirements. So much so that Paul said there is now no difference between Jew and Greek, between slave or free, between male or female. Because the only thing that matters is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and what that produces in you by the Holy Spirit is faith working through love. And that's what matters, and that's what he wants to draw the Galatians' attention to. Yet the false teachers were saying that faith in Christ was not enough, but that circumcision, submission to the law, was necessary. Because of this, Paul tells the Galatians that being circumcised and submitting to the regulations of the law is virtually the same thing as enslaving themselves back to their pagan forms of worship. So being circumcised would be yoking yourself again in slavery. After making this argument, Paul returns to the concepts in our passage of freedom again and slavery. And yet he reorients them through the lens of the gospel. He says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Earlier Paul said, for freedom Christ has set you free, and here he says that you have been called to freedom. It's here that Paul begins to address an implicit, or maybe it was explicit, charge against his teaching. If Christians are free and do not submit to the law, Are they free to sin? And we know that Paul's answer to that is, may genoita, may it never be. So he qualifies Christian freedom and says that, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This idea of an opportunity for the flesh, it can certainly refer to sinful behaviors such as the works of the flesh, which Paul is going to list later on. But in the context of this letter and where we're at, it can also refer to the sinful reliance on circumcision. For as Paul will say in chapter 6, verse 13, For the circumcised, that's the false teachers among them, the circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So in this context, being circumcised in order to try to fulfill the law's demands It's a work of the flesh. It's a way that they're seeking to rely on their own efforts to bring about a righteousness which God gives to them freely in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in all this, we see this wonderful paradox of the gospel. And that's that true freedom 
It's not found in licentiousness or doing whatever we want. But true freedom is expressed in slavery to God and in service to his people. So Paul calls on us to, through love, serve one another. I think that's a really soft translation. Paul is very clearly using the contrast between free and slaves. And he's saying that you're free and your freedom is expressed as making yourself a slave to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's your duty. Far from Christian freedom leading to license, it's expressed through our service of slavery to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Appropriately and ironically, Paul immediately grounds this principle of freedom expressed in slavery by quoting the law. So he says, quoting Leviticus 19.18, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In quoting this text, Paul reflects well his master, Jesus, regarding what has been called his golden rule. Where in Matthew 7, 12, he says to do unto others what you would have them do to you, adding that for this is the law and the prophets. In Matthew 22, verse 40, Jesus gives two commandments. He says, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he quotes the Leviticus text to love your neighbor as yourself and says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So sometimes Jesus and Paul will just use that love your neighbor command and say all the law and the prophets rely on. And it's the same thing I talked about in our confession of sin earlier. The reason for that is how we treat God's image bearers, how we treat those who are united to Christ, reflects how we feel about God. It reflects whether we love God or whether we hate him. How we treat God's people, how we treat his image bearers, reflects our attitude towards the God who made them. This brings Paul to his main concern, saying in verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is graphic imagery. Paul is using the language of a pack of animals which has gone cannibalistic and is biting, tearing, and eating each other to the point of devouring each other. He's using this analogy to depict the situation in Galatia where apparently the issue of circumcision and law-keeping has caused such arguments and strife to arise among the church there. And we'll definitely see that in chapter 6 when we get to more application of this. But this sets up Paul's discussion of the flesh and the spirit and about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. From Paul's animalistic analogy of biting and devouring one another in verse 15... And his statement in verse 26 about provoking one another and envying one another, we can conclude that divisions have arisen among the Galatian church. From this section, the letter as a whole, we can rightly assume that the division has been caused because of the issue of circumcision and law-keeping in the presence of these Judaizers, these false teachers who Paul has said earlier, those who are troubling you that he wishes they would emasculate themselves. Understand, though, that the issue at Galatia, it's not libertinism. They're not seeking to live in a moral life as they see it. In fact, it seems that the reason why the false teachers gained traction among them, why their teaching was appealing, is because it gave them concrete blueprints of ethical behavior that they could follow. It was appealing to have so many laws, or so they thought. The Galatians wanted this ethical blueprint 
and standard by which to measure and establish righteousness and right behavior. It's likely that the false teachers were telling them, you know what? Paul's gospel sounds good at first, but it has no way of regulating your behavior. It can't help you live out a new godly life now that you're out of paganism. You need a blueprint and you need assurance. Yet what Paul is telling the Galatians is that it is only those who have been united to Christ by faith and have received his Holy Spirit. It is only those who can fulfill the intent of the law. And this is done through loving their neighbors. But this can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit, which brings us to our next point. We've just looked at fulfilling the law. Now let us look at fighting the flesh. Whereas the false teachers were questioning the ability of Paul's gospel to regulate moral behavior, Paul now begins to explain why that's actually not the case at all. So in verse 16 he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And using the language of walking, Paul is drawing on deep biblical language and tradition in speaking about moral behavior. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, because he took him. God told Abraham to walk before him and be blameless, and he told Israel and warned them not to walk contrary to my ways. The language itself is morally neutral, but this is a way to talk about our lives, how we live out our lives and our conduct as walking. So it's morally neutral in itself, but Paul qualifies it by commanding them to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. This means that they are to live their life by the power and agency, by the guiding directance of the Holy Spirit, even working through God's Word. To this command, Paul attaches a promise. And sometimes we actually read this as if it's another command. But the way the Greek is, it's actually making a promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Because, as we'll see, they're in opposition to each other. He goes on to describe why it's the case in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This verse is describing a, a warfare of sorts between two agents and two powers. One person, or Paul personifies the flesh here for rhetorical purposes, saying that it has desires which are against the Spirit. And to be clear, the Spirit here is not talking about some sort of dualism in humans. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has desires which are against the flesh. He is saying that the Spirit and the flesh have opposing desires which are completely incompatible. And believers are caught up in the middle of this warfare. A good way to paraphrase this last statement of Paul to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I don't like that translation too much. A better way of trans, or at least paraphrasing it, so that you are not just able to do whatever you want to do. In other words, I don't think that Paul is saying that the Galatians have desires of the Spirit, but their flesh is weak and they can't fulfill it. I think there is some truth to that, some biblical grounds, and a lot of people would go to Romans 7 for that. But I'm not sure that's what Paul's saying here. Rather, I think that Paul is telling them that there's no neutral parties in this warfare. You are either enslaved by the flesh and follow its desires, or you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are being led by him to fulfill his desires. In other words, we don't just stand 
in the no-man zone and get to choose either way. We're either being controlled by the flesh or we're being led by the Spirit. I think that's Paul's point here. Now, he ties all of this into his larger argument in the letter, and he says that, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. This harkens back to Paul's earlier statement, having begun by the Spirit, will you finish or complete by the flesh? He wants them to understand the redemptive historical significance, where they stand in time, and what it shows because they have received the Holy Spirit in measure. Here I have to think that Paul had texts like Joel 2, 28, and uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 in his mind. All the, the biblical texts, the uh, prophets, who speak of God's promise to make a new covenant with his people. He will pour out his spirit on them, that he will put his law within them and write his law on their hearts, so that no longer will each one have to teach his neighbor, for they shall all know the Lord. In other words, Paul is telling them that they're trying to go back in redemptive history, which they cannot do. They have received the Holy Spirit. They are indwelt by God's Spirit, and they're being led by Him. They are no longer under law with its imprisonment, its guardianship, and its curse, because Christ became a curse for them. They are living in the time of fulfillment and are partakers in the promises and the benefits of the new covenant which is secured for them in Christ. Now, to identify the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh, and thus to identify whether or not they are living in the flesh or in the Spirit, Paul goes on to give representative things which the Spirit and flesh desire respectively. So he begins, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Here Paul lists 15 vices. Scholars have noted that they fit into kind of four categories. Sexual sins, false sins of false worship, community sins, stuff that affect the relationships with one another particularly, and um, also other sins of excess. Idolatry is pagan worship. Sorcery refers to those who practice magic. That might sound weird to us now in the Western context, but it's not weird in lots of other parts of the world, and it certainly wasn't weird in Paul's time. And also it could refer to people who who mix potions and poisons. So that is what that refers to. And idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, and orgies, these two words are often paired together. And I think the one translation is probably a little too specific and the one is too vague. Really, these words of drunkenness and orgies, it's referring to what would take place at particularly feasts, particular feasts for in dedication to God, such as the god Bacchus, the god of wine. It would be excessive eating, it would be excessive drinking, and then it would lead to, yes, orgies and the like. Notice how, though, what's really interesting. Eight of the 15 vices listed refer specifically to social sins, sins which particularly affect a community, sins that we probably wouldn't even think of as quite as bad as others. But Paul gives attention to eight of them, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Also recall that Paul has warned them about biting and devouring each other. 
Thus, in giving this list, which is representative of all kinds of sin, Paul is still giving a very focused attention to what is happening in their community right now. They are envying each other. They are jealous of each other. There is strife over this law issue. And Paul is calling on them to recognize that this is not the work of the Holy Spirit. This is coming about through the flesh. Paul wants them to see what the false teachers are causing. Rather than the false teachers giving them the blessing of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, they are bringing about dissensions, divisions, strife. They are working about and sowing seeds of the flesh among the flock. And there Paul attaches a dire warning. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Apparently, at some previous time, Paul had given them this warning in the past. And he's telling them that they should be paying heed to it. Persistence in behavior like this is a mark that you are somebody who belongs to the flesh and not to the spirit, and thus not an heir. In this way, Paul is undermining the false teachers and their teaching. The warning which he gives is serious. But thankfully, Paul had given them hope earlier because he assured the Galatians that you have received the Holy Spirit. You have been crucified with Christ. You are heirs with Christ. But he's using these warnings to show them their faulty way that they are falling into. By implication, though, Paul's warning extends to the false teachers as well. Those who are sowing discord among them, in doing this, they are exposing themselves as the type of people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. No doubt, this is a frightening passage. Who can look at this list of sins and not see themselves in many, if not all of them? And remember, these are just representative. Paul says, those who do such things. So if you somehow don't find yourself in this list, you're included. Trust me. But, as dire and as frightening it is, I think John Calvin's excellent and encouraging here and worth quoting in full. Calvin says, But in this way we shall be told, all are cut off from the hope of salvation, for who is not chargeable with some of these sins? See, even Calvin feels like he's included. And if Calvin's included, you are too. I reply, Paul does not threaten that all who have sinned, but that all who remain impenitent, shall be excluded from the kingdom of God. The saints themselves often fall into grievous sins, but they return to the path of righteousness, and therefore are not included in this category. All threatenings of the judgment of God call us to repentance. They are accompanied by a promise that those who repent will obtain forgiveness. But if we continue obstinate, they remain as a testimony from heaven against us. That's an important principle that he says, that all of God's warnings and threatenings have the flip side promise to it. You can remember Jonah's preaching to the, in Nineveh. He didn't say, repent and you'll be saved. He just said, in three days Nineveh's going to fall. But they repented. And the Lord relented because he's compassionate. And he's slow to anger. He's gracious and kind. The main takeaway from the quote of Calvin that I gave is that All of God's people are sinful, that we sin in grievous ways. But if we repent, there is forgiveness. As Calvin says, we must make sure that we are not obstinately remaining impenitent. But repentance itself, we must remember, is a gospel grace wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our third and last point. 
We have looked at fulfilling the law. We have just looked at fighting the flesh. Now let's finally look at the fruit of the Spirit. Having just given them a representative list of sins which he identified as works of the flesh in order that they might stop bickering and fighting, now Paul switches and gives them the identifying marks of the fruit of the Spirit and he gives them a representative list that they might cultivate a godly community among themselves. So he goes on in verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy, or is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Here he lists nine virtues which he calls fruit of the Spirit. Some have noted that whereas Paul used the plural for works of the flesh, yet here he used the singular for the fruit of the Spirit. From this, they surmise that they think that Paul did this to intentionally show that there is a unity in, these, in this fruit, these virtues. There's a unity in how they are to be present, not just some of these. I'm, I'm a patient person, but I'm not really a kind one. I'm a loving person, but etc., etc. Rather, these are something that to one degree or another are supposed to be present in all of God's people. I'm not exactly sure if Paul intended that. The Greek word for fruit, the same as ours, is a collective noun. It can refer to plural. But I do think that point is true. There is a unity to all these virtues. And all of God's people, to one degree or another, are to manifest all of these different spiritual virtues. Of the nine virtues that Paul gives... Well, I should mention, too, the most important thing about the the language of fruit of the Spirit in contrast to works of the flesh, works is something that we do in our own effort. Fruit, by itself, is saying that it's something that we do not produce, but it's something that the Holy Spirit causes to grow in our heart and produces in our lives. That's the main significance of the language of fruit. Of the nine virtues that Paul lists, he foregrounds love. Earlier in this chapter, he talked about how the Spirit, by faith, how through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And added that, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Further, as we saw in verse 14, he quoted the law to say that love of neighbor fulfills the law. So Paul, all throughout this section, is highlighting those three main theological virtues, which he talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. Love, hope, faith. These are Christian virtues. Now, he makes it very clear that love is a gift from God, a fruit of the Spirit in our hearts and lives. Even as we profess, uh, possess Christ's perfect righteousness, even now by faith in the present, even as we hope for the, the perfection of our nature in conformity to Christ, our glorification in the future, Paul is also saying that even now, in the present, by the work of the Holy Spirit who's sanctifying us, we can see this righteousness being worked in us to one degree or another in our sanctification. We are being made more and more like our righteous God and Savior. And sometimes that looks like being more aware of just how sinful we are. Each of these verses if you notice, is an answer of and is in opposition to the works of the flesh. Instead of idolatry and sorcery, love for God and neighbor. Instead of fits of anger, joy in the spirit. Instead of enmity, strife, jealousy. 
and envy, peace, patience, goodness, and kindness, instead of sexual immorality and drinking bouts, excessive eating and orgies, self-control. These two are in opposition to each other. Notice, too, how many of these virtues reflect the way God is talked about and described in the Old Testament. The covenantal kindness of God, the long-suffering patience, the faithfulness and goodness of the Lord is to be reflected in the lives of his people. And God himself is the one who sees to it that that's the case. This is not brought about from works of the law, pulling up our own bootstraps. No, this is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Even as Paul says in Ephesians, you are, we are, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he himself has prepared for us that we might walk in them, walk in them led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. This being the case, Paul states, against such things as these virtues, there is no law. This is close to a text in Aristotle where he would talk about with such people who are so virtuous, when you get to that point, you don't need a law for them because they're a walking law themselves. The Greek is pretty similar to that. I don't think Paul's directly drawing on Aristotle, but maybe a tradition. But what he's saying is against such people, against such things, there is no law. Far from Paul's gospel leading to lawlessness, the Holy Spirit actively works in believers to bring about the intention of the law, which is to be reflected in a community of believers who in love serve one another. Earlier in verse 16, Paul commanded them to walk in the Spirit and promised that they would not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now in verse 24, he states that what Gordon Fee calls the theological basis for that imperative and indicative. Paul writes, And those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I think Fee explains this really well, so I'm going to quote him. Those who have put their trust in Christ, Paul has said, have also been crucified with Christ, so that current life in the flesh is not predicated on the perspective of the flesh. Now he puts that in the active, purposely recalling their union with Christ in his death, but now as a bold metaphor as to what they have thereby done to their past way of life. They have nailed the flesh with its passions and desires to the cross. We can walk in the Spirit and be assured that we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh because we have nailed the flesh with its passions and desires to the cross of Jesus. Do you think about your fight with sins in these terms? Do you think about the war with the flesh in those terms? We need to. With Paul, we need to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, still living in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, we'll be tempted by the flesh. Yes, we'll be tempted to sin. But when the devil brings that to you, Say, it's nailed to the cross. That's no longer me. I live in Christ. In light of this, Paul concludes in verses 25 through 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We are made alive from the dead by the Spirit, and we need to live out that life by the same Spirit and be completed as well. Having begun by the Spirit, we must continue in and finish 
by his strength. And if we're keeping in step with the Spirit, that means that we must not be conceited. We must not provoke one another. We must not envy one another. Rather, in love, we must enslave ourselves to one another. With this, Paul has finally brought his lengthy argument, theological argument, to a close. In chapter 6, he's going to directly apply this to the situation in Galatia with the strife and the infighting among the relations. Here, Paul is trying to turn the Galatians away from their foolish choice of circumcision and submission to the law. And he's trying to focus their attention on what really matters. Christ has fulfilled the law. For them and their salvation, he brings a full and free salvation. Moreover, the Holy Spirit is working about the fruit of that salvation in their hearts and among their community. They must stop bending to the wills and whims of the flesh. Far from these false Judaizers leading them in the law, they're causing them to break the law by causing them to hate their neighbor and to not love their brothers and sisters in Christ. They need to keep in step with the Spirit who fulfills the law in them. Something that really stuck out to me as I was studying this passage this week is how very communal Christian ethics are. In our modern Western way of thinking, we can really miss this fact. We tend to focus on ourselves as individuals. And we approach a passage like Galatians 5 and we tend to just navel gaze and look like, am I doing that one well? Am I doing that one? How's it going? I think we have really done that with the fruit of the Spirit, repeating the list in our heads as we're in a car and we're getting angry or as we're waiting in a line that's too long. We talk about patience. And I I don't think that's completely wrong. But this whole discussion has a context in Paul. And the discussion of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, it's focused on the life of the church. It's focused on how the Galatians are functioning as a community of believers. Don't get me wrong. A community is made up of individuals. So we should seek to cultivate these virtues in our own lives. But the church is made up of individuals who are united to Christ Jesus, their head, and are united to one another in him. Let us come alongside each other and together cultivate a Christ-like character in the community of our church. In our membership interviews, we, we ask this last question, and it's kind of it's a tough one to answer. It's, what gifts do you have to serve the church? And if you froze on that question, you're not the only one. A lot of people do. It's hard to humbly be like, well, I think I can do this. Well, here is a wonderful passage where Paul gives you examples of ways to serve the church. Be a member who helps us develop an environment of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in this church. There's no greater gift that you can give the church than that, to give it a Christ-like character. If you're anything like me, though, you may be tempted towards feelings of guilt from a text like this. At times, it's a lot easier to see yourself in the list of the works of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit. But Christ would not have us to despair. Sanctification is a process, and we all, as James says, stumble in many ways. But he who called us is faithful. The work which he has begun by his Spirit, he will bring to completion by the same. And never... For a second, let yourself to think 
that your salvation is based on the goodness of your cultivation of these fruits. Your salvation is based on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives you a full and free salvation and gives you a spirit who works in you. That's the same Jesus who said that no greater love has a man than this, that he would die for his friends, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The same Jesus who for the joy set before him endured with patience and self-control the cross, despising the same. The same Jesus who himself is our peace, reconciling us to God and man. The same Jesus who in his kindness, goodness, and faithfulness says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit in every aspect of it. And he did that for you and for your salvation. Let all of us look to this Jesus in faith and find our rest from our weary souls. Amen? And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We confess that... uh, Passages like this can be difficult for us, Lord, because we see so much of the work of the flesh still raging uh, to take us in. I pray, Lord, that you would use this text, though, to encourage us of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died for us, and of the Holy Spirit, who lives in us and gives life to us. I pray, Lord, that for those here, if they are not sure that they are walking in the Spirit, and if they are in the flesh, I pray that you would use this text to even call them to faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says that I will by no means reject someone who comes to me. Lord, for those of us who are struggling in our sanctification, help us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Lord, I pray that you would build us up in all these ways and that we would glorify you in this church as a community which manifests the fruit of your spirit, loving one another and serving one another for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It's no coincidence that the sign which the Lord gives us week after week, at least in this church, is the crucifixion of our flesh, the picture of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, him who became a curse for us, him in whom we have died together with Christ, him in whom we now live. He gives this to us as a sign, his body given for you, his blood shed for you. Jesus knows that we're weak, and he knows that we need to be reminded of our flesh and how we need to put it to death. And as I said earlier, when you feel that, when you feel the tug of your flesh, look to the cross. Use this meal as a time to look to the cross. That's really what's pictured for you. And see here your flesh nailed. And see here your life is hidden with Christ and God. This is a meal not for people who are perfect. You're not going to be somebody who keeps all those different virtues at every moment in your life. We're sinners, and we'll remain that until we're glorified. But as Calvin said, this is 
something that is for repentant sinners, for those who know their sin and who are not obstinately continuing in it, but know that they need a Savior. Know that you are in the Spirit and you're being controlled by Him, but you still struggle with the flesh. But on the other hand, this meal is not for impenitent sinners. It's not for those who are obstinately continuing in their sin. It's not for those who know that they're walking in the dominion of the flesh. So I'd ask you if that describes you, if you have not been baptized, if you have not made a credible profession of faith, you're not a member in a faithful Bible-believing church, I would ask you to let these elements pass. But even as they pass, look to what they symbolize. See your need and see what is waiting for you if you don't repent of your sins. That Christ became a curse so that you will not have to face the curse. And I beg you to lay hold of him who calls you and says, take on his yoke. He's a gentle Savior. Let us pray over this meal and ask the Lord to bless it to our nourishment. Lord Jesus Christ, you fix this table with the finest ingredients, your body and blood poured out for us. Lord Jesus, we struggle with the flesh, so we thank you that you give us an audible word and you give us a visible word so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray that you would bless these ordinary elements and by the power of your Spirit who is work in us, raise us up into heaven so we are seated with you and even dining with you. Work this meal to encourage our faith to run the race that we, have, we who have begun by the Spirit, that we may finish by the Spirit as well. Even so, we pray you would bless this time and help us to glorify you in it. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.